Episode 17, Understanding Blessed Are the Meek. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. Well, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a few weeks since I posted last, and I'm excited to get back at it a bit today. I've had uh, many, many topics come to mind that I'd surely love to do next, but let me remind you uh, that we are on this journey to uh, rethink the Bible in uh, better ways, more diligent, more rational, more honest, responsible ways than we might have done growing up or in our uh, various church traditions and all that. And along the way, we've been particularly uh, concerned with what God had in mind for humankind to be. Uh, I think this is probably one of the most fundamental things we ought to have in mind as we read and study and consider the Bible, uh, because if, if we're not thinking about what God wanted for us, then it becomes a bit of an academic pursuit, uh, devoid of the more meaningful personal Uh, inward things that I think God has in mind for us to be uh, dealing with and thinking about as we live out our lives here in this real world in which he set us. So uh, today I wanted to talk about a verse that's very popular. It comes to mind very quickly. And of course, uh, if you know from the title already, it's Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I'll tell you right up front, um, the last part of it, for they shall inherit the earth, Well, we're not going to talk about that today and what that means. Uh, It's an important topic, and it certainly is something we'll cover in the future. But there's so much here, uh, just in the first part of the sentence, blessed are the meek, that deserves our attention. And so uh, what I wanted to do today is to focus on this and uh, hopefully tie it in with where we've been so far. Uh, I'll give you the gist of what I'm thinking, and that is that Uh, This word meek is not a great English translation, and as you'll see, there is just not an English word that means what this word uh, means in the Greek uh, from which it is translated into the word meek, or we'll also see gentle or humble, it's it's also used. But there is not a good English translation of this. We just don't have a word that means what that word means. And so Bible translators... Uh, rarely make up new words to mean things. Uh, so it's a bit of a difficulty and um, it's not a surprising one at that. 
that we should sometimes stumble over the uh, transition from one language to another. And so this word, though, in English, I wanted to read you the uh, translation, or not the translation, but the definition. This is from Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. And I want to read you, they have three listings here, uh, and I wanted to start backwards. I want to read you the third definition first. So their definition of meek is not violent or strong, uh, moderate. Uh, His delivery, this is an example sentence, his delivery varied from a meek, melodic patter to rapid-fire scriptural allusions. This is a quote from somebody. Well, so the idea of being uh, not violent or strong well, okay, not strong. That's the same we would use the word weak, right? Then number two, uh, deficient in spirit and courage. And so, again, that is somebody who's lacking something to be meek. And I think these and, and other uh, modern definitions are more common. Interestingly, though, the Merriam-Webster number one definition, I think, comes closer to getting it in the same sense that it's meant in the Greek, and and we'll talk about the Greek word in a moment. But here they have for number one, enduring injury with patience and without resentment. And they use the synonym mild, and the the example, a meek child dominated by his brothers. Uh, Of course, that example doesn't really tell the whole story, uh, because their idea is that you're enduring suffering or injury with patience and without resentment. Well, uh, this is something more in the ballpark, although I'm not sure that completely nails what the Greek idea was, although I find their number one definition a bit surprising because I think in common usage, that is probably not the most um, popular idea of what this word means. So anyway, we're back to Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, what's the Greek word used here? This word meek in English comes from the Greek praus. And a prouse is what we call a, a lemma. It is the the standard basic word to which other prefixes or suffixes might be added. The form of the word might be changed depending on its role in a sentence and such. But the word here, prouse, uh, again, does not have an English equivalent. And so the translators uh, always uh, struggled knowing how to present this word in English. I looked up 60 translations at BibleGateway.com. Uh, of Matthew 5, 5, and I found that of the 60, 34 of them render it as meek, 12 render it as gentle, uh, 13 render, render it as humble, and then there are a couple of others. One, the Phillips translation says, uh, talks about people who, quote, claim nothing, end quote. And I don't think that means that they are unwilling to make assertions, you know, making claims in that sense of saying things, but rather probably that it means they claim nothing is their own, something along those lines. And probably if we got Phillips to expound on this, he would probably tell us something like they, they give it all over to God or something like this. The next one was in the New Life version. It talks about people who, quote, have no pride, end quote. And so, again, that's just the negative statement of uh, what is humility or what it means to be humble. And then, uh, finally, in the Worldwide English translation in their, their New Testament, it talks about people who, quote, quietly trust him and do not try to get in their own way. Or, I'm sorry, who do not try to get their own way. 
uh, end quote. Well, that's interesting. Uh, and of course, here you see some of the, the scholarly problem when a translator has one word in Greek, praus, and he goes one, two, three, four, five, about 10 or 11 words to translate it. Uh, so that's a bit of the uh, struggle here, and that's okay. This is the kind of thing that we as Christians should be uh, more and more familiar with as we age and mature and study the Bible and grow in our knowledge, that there are issues uh, where we don't always know exactly what the Bible authors intended. Now, fortunately, there are some words uh, in the Bible that appear only once. So if you want to go looking around through the Scriptures to find out, well, how's that word used in other places? Well, you're out of luck because it's in the one passage only. But this word praus and then uh, praotes, the, uh, the adjective form of it, as in meekness or gentleness, something, uh, those appear in the Bible several times. And we're going to look at some of those today. I want you to see uh, how it's used. Uh, uh, first of all, the word praus, just uh, this uh, adjective meaning meek or whatever, it's used in three passages in the New Testament. We'll look at those really quickly just to get our get our feet wet here. Of course, we're starting in Matthew 5, 5, where it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then Matthew 21, 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, that's the word right there, prowls, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And we're going to see a little later this is... Uh, an allusion back to an Old Testament passage, and we'll talk about that in time. And then in 1 Peter 3, 4, uh, Peter's giving ad advice to the wives among the Christians. And uh, he says, uh, starting in verse 3, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle that's the word, prowse, and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So here he's saying that something about this quality, this uh, prowseness or, or uh, prowess, uh, is, is meaningful to God. It's very precious to God. And that really keys in on our goal here of figuring out, well, what did God have in mind? You know, you create us here, we turn into a species that's had billions and billions of lives uh, come and go, well, what was your idea, God, for how we should live out our lives? And so that's why I wanted to tackle this uh, meekness idea today and uh, really stretch our brains to get around it, um, to grasp it, because I think the normal talk about this meekness idea is not very accurate, and it's not the picture you'd get from studying it out thoroughly in the Bible. And so um, I've listed out and read all the 60 uh, translations of it here, and uh, they, they seem to be um, interested in keeping the traditional, you know, uh, about half of them keep the traditional word meek, which, of course, we get in the King James Bible, and it's been around a long time. So I did some digging and uh, on my uh, Bible software that I use, a Logos uh, Bible software, and I found listings in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, and they walk through several uh, things here about how it's used in the secular Greek and how it's also used in the uh, Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which 
we call the Septuagint, or scholars also, in shorthand, they call it the LXX. If you've ever seen that, that's what that's talking about. And uh, we're going to read through some of their notes here, but I wanted to start with a passage from Vine's Expository Dictionary. And if you'll pardon my one hand reaching for the book here, which you can't see, but I just had an uh, injury to my arm and had a surgery a few weeks back and do not handle things so well. Uh, I want to read one paragraph out of his, um, out of Vine's entry on the word meek. And this is from Vine's Expository Dictionary of Bible Terms. Oh, excuse me, uh, Expository Dictionary of Biblical Words. And he's talking about, uh, in this particular passage, about the the noun version, the praotes, which is uh, the idea of meekness or gentleness or humbleness or however you might want to put it if you're going to use one of those words. And he says, the meaning of praotes is not readily expressed in English for the terms meekness, mildness, excuse me, mildness, commonly used, suggest weakness and pusillanimity. And yes, I had to practice that word several times to get it right. Pusillanimity, to a greater or lesser extent. So I'm going to read that again. Um, the meaning of praotes is not readily expressed in English, for the terms meekness, mildness, commonly used, suggest weakness and pusillanimity to a greater or lesser extent, whereas praotes does nothing of the kind. Nevertheless, it is difficult to find a rendering less open to objection than meekness. Gentleness has been suggested, but as Praotis describes a condition of mind and heart, and as gentleness is appropriate rather to actions, this word is no better than that used in both English versions. It must be clearly understood, therefore, that the meekness manifested by the Lord and commended to the believer is the fruit of power. The common assumption is that when a man is meek, it is because he cannot help himself. But the Lord was meek, and he's got that in quotation marks, meek, because he had the infinite resources, resources of God at his command. Described negatively, and let me pop in here, negatively here doesn't mean uh, this is a bad thing. It means we're going to describe it from the opposite side. Uh, described negatively, and this is Vines again, Meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It is equanimity of spirit that is neither elated nor cast down, simply because it is not occupied with self at all. And so that, those words are a little bit more academic than maybe our average uh, American street conversation. But he's saying that uh, the idea here is the the person who has this this quality of um, being meek or praus in the Greek or praotes uh, that person is not being concerned with self; they're being concerned with something else. And of course, I find that immediately fascinating uh, because of the the question: What would motivate any person to? decouple from self in order to consider something else. And we'll talk some about what that something else is and, and what it's like. But I thought Vines uh, did a great job 
of letting us know that this is not a convenient word for translators. So uh, we've got to get our hands around it some other way. You can read that uh, so-and-so was, quote, meek in the Bible, but if you don't know what that means, it doesn't really help you to read the verse. So we have to go digging and find out what it means. So I'm back to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament now in their entry for Prowse, and uh, they start out with talking about the secular Greek usage, that is, you know, not in the Bible, uh, probably more from classical Greek and such, but not in the Koine Greek of the Bible. Uh, and their first uh, paragraph says this, the word means uh, mild when it's talking about things. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here a little bit as I read it. It means tame when it's talking about animals. It means gentle or pleasant of persons. Well, there. this is the thing, of course, that Vines criticizes. Or it means kindly or lenient of such things and activities or such things as punishments. The adverb prouse denotes quiet and friendly composure. Hmm, okay, uh, this is how they're interpreting it from some secular Greek works. And then going on, it says in their second paragraph, the word means mild and gentle friendliness. Uh, this is praotes. This is what we'd call meekness or uh, gentleness. Uh, the Greeks value this virtue highly so long as there is compensating strength. And I highlighted, highlighted this because uh, this is something we need to keep in mind that somehow they're associating it in the common uh, secular usage uh, in, with the idea of strength. And that's something we're going to come back to that. I'll skip a little ahead. It talks about how Aristotle used it. And uh, the author here says that Aristotle says it's a mean or, you know, the, the, the average between bad temper and spineless incompetence, between extreme anger and indifference. Now, let's think about that for a minute. Uh, have you ever gone to somebody with uh, pleading some sort of case where you thought, oh, this really important thing is happening and boy, you need to know about this and we need to go do something. And then you find the person to be surprisingly indifferent about it or they just don't seem to have the natural amount of care. Well, this is one of the extremes that Aristotle is pointing out. And the other is the extreme anger <laughs> where, oh, hey, I'm sorry, I'm two minutes late. What? You're two minutes late? That's terrible. And then they just go off on you like, oh, okay, something's not quite adding up here. This is inordinate. You know, it's uh, the anger's out of order. It's uh, too much it, for what is called for. And so Aristotle is saying, well, this is in the middle. And this is very interesting, again, to think about. You know, we have this idea that the Greeks associated it, uh, this uh, praus or praotes, with uh, strength. And then here Aristotle has it in the middle. It reminds me of the proverb that says, uh, the wise man avoids all extremes. And you wonder what was Solomon talking about when he wrote that, or, or whoever was the, the writer of that particular one. And here Aristotle is saying it's the difference it's in between having the bad temper and the spineless incompetence or the extreme anger and the indifference. And so that's very interesting because uh, you have to have some strength to stay in the middle there sometimes. It takes strength of character. And uh, 
and as as we're going to see, I think that's what this word means when it's used in the Bible too. Now, going on there, next entry here, uh, and again, this is uh, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, talking about how the word is used in the Old Testament, and that is uh, in the Greek version of the Old Testament. It says it's used 12 times uh, for various Hebrew terms. So this is the Greek writers translating Hebrew words by using Greek, uh, the word praus. And uh, one of the times it's used to talk about Moses. And this is Numbers 12, verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek, not just meek, but very meek, mind you, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Now that's pretty fascinating. It gets me uh, thinking, hey, wait a minute. We know that Moses did sometimes mess up. He got very angry. He killed a guy. Uh, Was that messing up or not? Uh, he, he also, uh, he broke the tablets, right? Got mad about that. Um, pretty sure that was not good. You might say the killing of the Egyptian was justified. You might not say that. And that's a different conversation. I'm not ready to have. I haven't thought enough about it. Um, I might be embarrassed to say that I, I don't know, but, uh, when he throws down the tablets that God gave him, it's like, well, okay, Moses, I think you've crossed the line here. And yet, uh, the text tells us Moses was a was very meek or prous, more than all people who are on the face of the earth. Well, this is very interesting to me that uh, if Moses was the best there was, yet he's still imperfect, and God's going to work with Moses anyway. So imagine uh, the difficulties God did have with Moses on a few occasions. Imagine that while Moses is the best of all the people there were, uh, at, at least at that time, I would assume, that uh, God could have chosen to work with. So it would have been worse trying to work with somebody else. Indeed, look at what Aaron did uh, when Moses is away on the mountain. <laughs> so they come back and Aaron's made a golden calf for them and all that. So, uh, so Moses was the most like this of anybody up to the time that, that we're uh, reading about in the Moses writing. Also, there's a passage in Zechariah, uh, chapter 9, and I want to read this. It's uh, just a couple of verses. It's uh, verse 9 and 10. And here we're going to see, I, I told you before that we would uh, we had looked at uh, the three New Testament verses that use prowse, and one of them was about Jesus coming on a donkey uh, in Matthew 21.5. And that actually is drawn from this passage I'm about to read in Zechariah 9. So it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble, now that's our word prouse in the Septuagint, uh, humble prouse, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, this is just packed with language that we would, uh, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time with it. This I'm sure books could be written on these two verses. But 
one thing that we see here is that this uh, Prowse quality is something that's in Jesus. And yet Jesus here is uh, basically being shown as a conqueror who will rule the world. And so here's a question for you. When you hear the word meek, do you think about a world ruler? Uh, chances are probably that your answer is no, no, I don't. Because we don't use that word to describe uh, people who are rulers. And so there are other passages we'll see too about this where uh, Jesus can be rather fierce. And that is not what we think of when we think of the word meek which is, of course, the problem here, that the word meek doesn't really do what this word prouse or the, um, the noun of praotis does. So uh, here's Psalm 45 in verse 4 through 7. It's a, another couple of paragraphs. In your majesty, write out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness. And there's the, the prouse word and righteousness. Let your right hand teach your awesome deeds. And now, and it goes on, we see that this one writing out is uh, also a warrior. In verse 5, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Remember uh, our, one of our theme verses, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has, appointed, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So here we have the idea that... Um, not only is, and I think this is a reference to Jesus here, that he is the one who would come in judgment and put away the enemies. The cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, that's what he was coming, he was writing out in that cause. And then it says a little later, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. So here's another question. When you think of the word meek or meekness, do you think of somebody who hates wickedness? Or do you think rather of somebody who tolerates it, who stays quiet about it, <laughs> who, who slinks off someplace into the background, trying not to be present when controversy about evil comes up? I think there's a lot of that, and I think it's really played into the culture of the churches, a lot of conflict avoiding rather than conflict solving, which, of course, you have to decouple from your own fears and your insecurities and uh, your worries if you're going to actually solve something as opposed to just letting it linger, letting it fester, uh, saving it for another day. I had a college friend who I was very surprised to watch one morning. I was sitting at the breakfast table. He came into the refrigerator, got out the milk and sniffed it. He made the bad face about it, put the lid back on the milk and put it back in the refrigerator. And I asked him, do you think that milk might be better tomorrow. And of course, uh, he may have just been taking the lazy way out rather than to pour the milk down the drain and throw away the carton. Uh, he decided to put it back in the refrigerator. Of course, 
this means that somebody else goes through the same process again later as they discover that the milk is bad. And of course, it made me wonder, well, how many times had it already been tested by other roommates and put back in the refrigerator? But this person uh, hates wickedness here, the one who's described as, as riding out in the cause of meekness, or the praus or praotes. And so they hate wickedness. This is not a mild position to take. And so immediately this challenges, I think, common usage of meekness and the idea that we get through the sermons we've heard over the years. Uh, and <laughs> this, is, this is, of course, the problem with sermonizing on the New Testament uh, or, in this specific case, on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus' language is packed with references to, allusions to the Old Testament, to the prophecies, to the law. And if you don't go looking for that, you'll never know. And so you're just a standard run-of-the-mill preacher. You run across this, and you're like, oh, uh, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then you go set off to find your own meaning in that, and you, before you know it, you may have laid out a lot of assertions that Jesus would have never intended. So anyway, I thought that, I thought that this passage, again, was a challenge to the common idea of Jesus' teaching because I think uh, it's pretty common for Christians today to think that Christians are supposed to be nonchalant, you know, non-challenging, and yet here's somebody who's shown as a warrior who hates wickedness and they love righteousness. And, you know, that too, it reminds me of the Isaiah passage about woe to those who call what is good evil and what is evil good, who get things wrong and all that. Well, this person is very extreme in their love for the righteous and their hate for the wickedness. And so, uh, again, that's something that we need to, to take to heart. Now, in the New Testament, in uh, Praotes, it, uh, it's used several places, and this is you know, what we would translate as gentleness or meekness or uh, perhaps humility in some places. But let me read to you Galatians 5, and this is a very uh, well-known passage. But the fruit, this is Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. There's our word, a praotes. And then it goes on, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, if you remember back, we read earlier that um, it wasn't about self. This was from Vine's notes, this idea of the of the praus or praotes, it's not about self, it's about something else. And so here Paul is expounding, and I think we, we frequently miss this when we read it. He says that against these kinds of things, these, these um, virtues that he's talking about that include the praotes, he says there is no law against these things, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So here you have people who have decoupled from the typical human passions and desires and have said, no, I'm going to live for something else. It will not be my focus. Something else will be my focus. Well, of course, in my mind, uh, the way I see all this, this all comes back to living in the image and likeness of God. 
And we're going all the way back to Genesis 1, which we've discussed a lot. And this is the plan uh, for humanity, according to God, who created humanity. So, you know, think of all these themes we've been through, what it means to be created. And here you have the Christians who were finally getting it right uh, after all these uh, millennia of humankind. And they were decoupling from their own passions and desires and going after these other things, this fruit of the Spirit, which consisted in, again, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So let me ask you another question. The idea of the word meek, where it means milk toast, weak, incompetent, unable to do any different from what you're doing, helpless, something along these lines, is that what's being described here? Can you, uh, through weakness, can you decouple from your passions and desires and do something righteous and holy and worthy instead? No, that takes strength. And again, I, I mentioned that early on uh, with the theological dictionary there and how uh, it talked about how the, the secular Greeks tied this idea of prowess together with strength. And that, again, is what we're seeing here. It's very consistent. It's used in uh, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, Second uh, Timothy 2, 25 and such. And then we come to James, where in uh, chapter 1 and 22, here's the note, and this again is from the uh, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And the note from James says this, uh, Praotes entails a readiness to be taught in the Word, meaning in the Scriptures. The divine wisdom is gentle and peaceable, and its gentleness will be a mark of the righteousness in pleasing contrast to bitterness and contention. Have you noticed how uh, Jesus talked to bad guys a lot? He got challenged a lot by the Pharisees and the scribes, the uh, lawyers and such, and by the established leaders. And yet, we don't read about him uh, going off in anger and cursing and such. And when we do read about his more extreme responses, we find them surprising because of what else we know about him. So it's a little hard for us to figure out the day he makes a whip, or depending on how you read the scripture, did you do this twice? And then that's a fun conversation. But the day he makes a whip and drives the money changers out of the temple, uh, we tend not to think of that as part of being meek. And yet, good Christians that we are, we also would hesitate to say, oh, Jesus sinned that day in that anger. So yes, we know he got mad, but was Jesus always getting mad like this? You know, as an American, from my limited point of view, every time I see uh, Hitler in old uh, newsreels and such, it's so often it's him pounding the desk as he's yelling, you know, nine, 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 and this kind of anger thing. Is that the picture you get of Jesus? Well, no, I would, I would imagine most people would say no. Uh, yet he did clear out that temple. And with the whip, now, did he even hit people with the whip? Hmm, that's a good question. 
doesn't tell us, so we have to be responsible how we handle that question. Of course, Paul, you know, once tells the Corinthians, shall I come with a whip? And one wonders, hey, what's all behind that? Did Paul ever do that? Did he ever, like, hit anybody with a whip? Or was he just waxing hyperbolic when he said that and had no intention at all? Well, those are interesting things to wonder about. Yet here we see uh, that Jesus himself did it in the temple. He ran people out. And uh, why make a whip if you're not going to crack it at people? So it's very, very interesting, and it challenges our idea of meekness. Of course, Jesus himself is described, even in his own words, as uh, praus or praotes. So what are we going to do with that? Jesus says he's like this. We're supposed to be like this. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Okay. Well, then how can we justify in ourselves that we are not like that? And how can we justify that in the church cultures that have been built and, and maintained and that have evolved over the centuries, this idea of the uh, zealous keeping of what's right, keeping centered, not, not going to the left, not going to the right, not disobeying, in this way or that, not being overly angry or undercaring in a thing, how can we justify that this has become common as a personality trait for people in the churches? Not that everybody um, is like this, and, and even if they are like it, I don't mean to suggest they're like this on every subject. No, but it's my impression, and perhaps you will disagree with me, but it's my impression that a great many uh, believers in the churches today are not getting this one quality on straight, this idea where they're going to have the strength to do what is right, to think what is right, to stick to what is right, even in the face of persecution or of, um, of insult or of difficulties and all that. And so I think this is a very a critical for us to think through this because I think we're getting it wrong. I want to read you a passage from the uh, William Barclay commentary on Matthew, and this is from Volume 1, the Revised Edition. And on this verse, Matthew 5.5, 5, he has a lot to say about it, and he does uh, tell a little bit more about uh, what we just read in the dictionary here. Uh, regarding Aristotle, he says this, Aristotle defines meekness, praotes, as the mean, or the middle, uh, between orgolotes, which means excessive anger, and eorgasia, which means excessive angerlessness. Praotes, uh, or meekness it has here, as Aristotle saw it, is the happy medium between too much and too little in anger. And so the first possible translation of the Beatitude is, Blessed is the man who was always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. So immediately we can see this takes strength to do that, because if you're like me, uh, it is easy to get angry at the wrong time. And so there's an inner, inner quality here. And he goes on saying, if we ask what the right time and the wrong time are, 
we may say as a general rule for life that there is never right to be angry for any insult or injury done to ourselves. That is something that no Christian must ever resent, but that it is often right to be angry at injuries done to other people. Selfish anger is always a sin. Selfless anger can be one of the great moral dynamics of the world. But the word praus has a second standard Greek usage, and this is Barclay still. It is the regular word for an animal which has been domesticated, which has been trained to obey the word of command, which has learned to answer to the reins. It is the word for an animal which has learned to accept control. So the second possible translation of the Beatitude is, and again this is Barclay, Blessed is the man who has every instinct, every impulse, every passion under control. Blessed is the man who is entirely self-controlled. And so Barclay goes on with this uh, consideration of uh, how, uh, how it should be translated. He, he gives another shot at it, saying, Blessed is the man who has the humility to know his own ignorance, his own weakness, and his own need. And then he finally ends up his conversation with this. Uh, oh, the bliss of the man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time, who has every instinct and impulse and passion under control because he himself is God-controlled, who has the humility to realize his own ignorance and his own weakness, for such a man is king among men. That's how he translates the last part of, um, you know, to, to inherit the earth. And so uh, I think it's very obvious, thinking through all this, that there's a lot to say about this idea of praus and praotes, that God wanted us to be people like Jesus and not people who would be cowards or who would run away, who would be timid and such uh, in the face of other people or of our own uh, temptations and desires and all that. And so it makes me think about a Proverbs passage that's been on my mind for years. In Proverbs 24.10, listen to this. If you falter in time of trouble, how small is your strength? This one I've always found very daring, uh, very provocative, because it, it tends to suggest that if, when times of trouble come, we falter and we don't do what is right, that we are very weak indeed. That is, it seems to be the idea that we were created to be able to do what is right, even in times of trouble. And this brings to mind, of course, our current political situation, which is, uh, seems to be growing more and more dangerous with every passing week. We've just had the election. It's still in dispute. There's all kinds of allegations of cheating. Uh, some of it I certainly believe are accurate uh, allegations, and it seems like the whole um, the whole question of what America is supposed to be is hanging in the balance, because the original ideas, which haven't been uh, maintained all that well for the last couple of centuries, uh, apparently are not pleasing to some who want a major reset. And so these are difficult times, and I would imagine they're going to get more difficult. And so what's the Christian supposed to do? Well, that's a huge topic. Of course, you get a little feel for my opinions on these things from the COVID-19 
episodes that we have done already. But the idea that the Christian should just try to write it out, just, you know, don't make anybody mad, don't talk about it, avoid it, talk about other things. You know, I had an old friend the other day going live on Facebook talking about, oh, this is all just a big distraction, and and Satan just wants you to be distracted from what's really important. Well, no, I think this is really important, what's going on, and it needs to be dealt with, and it's not a distraction. It's, It's as my friend would have us all just go to church and read the Bible and do nothing about um, our role as citizens in the United States. And so uh, these things are obviously very difficult, but I wanted to read you one more passage from Hebrews 10, which I think uh, sums it up quite nicely in some ways. Let me just read this, and then we'll talk about it. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 35 through 39, and this is the English Standard Version. And this, of course, we're coming in on the middle of a conversation, uh, which you'll get from the first word. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, and then now it's quoting from the Old Testament, yet in a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So here you see the writer of Hebrews, who is making a contrast between the normal people out there who do shrink back in times of trouble and those who don't. And so there's a quality, and it's very funny because this is a a rare quality to find completely through somebody's character. We all have our moments of heroism, and it's easy to be heroic about one thing, but uh, not about another, to care deeply about one thing, but not about the next thing. And of course, I don't believe that all things are equally important, so please don't take me to be meaning that. But the idea that we should be people who are concerned with what's right, who should love righteousness and hate wickedness, How does that play out, say, in a practical sense, in your life as an American? When you see wickedness going on with government, for for example, or down at the local school, which of course is government too, although we call it education, but it's government doing it. When you see that, do you hate it? Or do you try to turn the other way because you don't want to get involved and you don't want to deal with it? Indeed, what do you do when it happens in your church? And I'm sure uh, any honest person who's been in a church for long can certainly see situations where bad things have happened, where evil things have happened. Uh, (laughs) The church I grew up in had um, one night uh, the preacher got a knife and murdered his wife and one of his sons, and uh, the other son managed to escape. And then he spent the rest of his life in prison. And then another uh, youth minister, um, choir director type guy, was 
uh, arrested years later for child pornography and for creating it, mind you, not just watching it, but creating it. And then, you know, another is uh, thrown in jail for uh, raping his own daughter. And, you know, this is the leadership in a church. And I'm sure that stories like this are not particular to that one uh, congregation, but that they go uh, all around the world. And this is stuff that's supposedly done by people who claim loyalty to Jesus. Well, we all have our faults, obviously. Some faults are way bigger than others. Some stumbling is way worse than other stumbling, obviously. But my question is bigger than that. Is this what we're shooting for? Hey, I want to be righteous. I want to love what's righteous. I want to hate what's wicked. I don't want to try to sit on the fence between the two. I'm all for righteousness. I'm none for wickedness. Is that what we're like? I was frustrated uh, doing this study today because I had remembered from years ago running into language, I thought, in the study of this word praus and praotis, that uh, language that talked about the animal well-trained, you know, uh, accustomed to the reins, as we read from Barclay, that he would not turn to the right or to the left. And as it turns out, I could not find that language as I restudied the issue today. Although that language is uh, a lot in the Bible. It appears several times if you go look it up. This idea, especially about obedience, that, you know, even when God's giving them the, the law of Moses, he says, don't turn to the right or to the left. Follow these things. Well, is that what kind of people we are? It certainly seems to be what kind of people God expects us to be and wanted us to be and created us to be. And some will say, oh, but we are a fallen species, a fallen race, and we're just no good at anything, and <laughs> we're, we're a really big mess. Uh, okay, well, how do you explain then that the New Testament writers were writing about a praus and praotes and these other uh, qualities of self-control and strength and obedience? Why were they writing about that? Did they not know that mankind is fallen and useless and cannot possibly get anything right whatsoever? Were they ignorant of that thing that you, a dear modern-day Christian, uh, believe adamantly? Or did they expect Christians to do better? It's very funny. So many today, uh, funny in a bad way, so many today will claim, oh, we have the mind of Christ. And I think that passage, and this is 1 Corinthians 2, I think that's uh, Paul talking about him and the other apostles. I don't think he's using that to talk about all the Christians. Uh, uh, and that's a discussion for another day. But suppose I'm wrong, and suppose Paul was saying, yes, we, all of us Christians, uh, not only now, but forever and ever, including in 2020, uh, have the mind of Christ. Well, okay, if we have that mind of Christ, and that mind of Christ was praotes, that is, uh, you know, or it was praus, rather, that, that's the, uh, the adjective. If it was praus, meek, uh, gentle, whatever word you want to say there, in lieu of all these ideas that it really means, then why aren't we like that? And why isn't the culture of Christianity like that? Why aren't the churches all like that, filled with people who won't turn to the left or the right, 
who will obey um, very faithfully, who won't run from trouble, who won't falter in times of strength, who won't uh, wimp out and do the sissy thing when uh, we get put in a hard spot. Why aren't the churches filled with people like that? If indeed we all have the Spirit and uh, having the Spirit is part of that and we're empowered through this, this is what uh, so many, how many, so many people think about it. Well, if that's what it's like, how come we're not people of prowess? People are prowess, people of meekness. Or, and again, meekness is not the right word. Hope you know that by now after this long conversation. Why aren't we like that? You know, there's a couple of passages that are pretty famously known. Uh, he did not give us a spirit of fear. Okay. And we're not to be made slaves again to fear. Well, okay. If that's true, then, and I think it is, but <laughs> then why is it that so many today who will tell you that they claim Jesus and that they're Christians are a scared people? Timid, shy, afraid, afraid to speak up, afraid to get involved, afraid to take a stand, unwilling to uh, deal with controversy, even unwilling to look into a matter uh, when you've been challenged about a matter. Why are you so afraid to look into it? If you have the mind of Christ, if you have this prouse uh, quality about you, then how come you don't have this prowess quality about you? <laughs> Why is that? Well, part of it may be that we under misunderstand, uh, you know, as a as a people, a, a, an aggregate altogether, that we misunderstand what this meekness idea was. And then part of it, of course, may be that we don't want to be that kind of person. We don't really love righteousness that much. Uh, it's easy to be a hero in one situation where you have a lot of support from the crowd, but what if you're the only one who's getting a thing right so far? Are you as apt to stand up for truth and righteousness then as you are uh, when you've got a whole church behind you saying, rah, rah, yeah, go, go, preach it, bro, right? <laughs> well, what if they don't agree? But you know what the scriptures say and they don't agree with that. Are you going to shrink back? Are you going to falter in times of trouble? I think this is a very serious issue. I think that millions and millions have missed it. They have misidentified the character of Jesus in this way. And they think he's something that he is not. And I think they'd be very surprised by what he really is. And so you can see this comes down to the question of what kind of people are we? And then what kind of people are we supposed to be? So that's why I wanted to cover this topic today. Uh, I think it is a great reminder that uh, not everything we hear in our daily comings and goings in the churches and in the, the radio sermons and such, not everything we hear is going to be uh, very accurate. Some of it is certainly accurate. Some of it is certainly not. And you can hear two sermons on the radio back to back that, that uh, contradict one another on some point or other. I always find that very interesting. Same radio station plays them both. So eh, they're not being all that careful what goes out on the airwaves. 
And of course, they're being paid money to play them uh, somewhat. So there's all kind of issues that work there. But what are we going to do? When you are told by the government that, no, your church may not meet, or your church may not sing, or they may not hold hands or hug one another, or that your class may not meet, or that your chorus may not sing, well, you know that you have a right to do those things. It's in the Constitution, and they have no right to turn off the Constitution without uh, a major act of all the states saying, okay, let's turn it off. So uh, where's the evil there? Is the evil in you who will not uh, consent to do the wrong thing? Or is it the evil in those who tell you you have to do that? And even in the churches, even if you're uncomfortable with political conversation because you've got your mind partitioned between what's religious and what's political and never the twain shall meet, if you've got this wall of separation thing going up in that kind of way and you're thinking, okay, well, let's talk about what are you going to do when your church wants to do X and you think that X is unbiblical, unspiritual, ungood, uh, unrighteous. There's, there's a real world, <laughs> real word. What are you going to do? Well, I just, you know, went with whatever the elders said. But wait a minute, you think the elders are disobeying God? Yes, I do. So you went with them rather than God. Well, it says in there, you know, uh, obey the leaders and submit to their authority. Uh, <laughs> right? So you see there's some problem here. You can't just uh, treat the Bible as a bunch of one-liner memes and, and uh, whip them out there as if they don't sometimes deserve some further thought and further examination. And yet I think that's where this um, not-so-good idea of the milk-toast meekness um, like everywhere Jesus walked, there were doves following him around and butterflies flittering and, and uh, bluebirds uh, circling around his head like, uh, what is that, Snow White in the Disney films? Uh, if not her, it's the other one. Uh, but anyway, you get the idea that uh, Jesus was not like that. He would uh, sometimes get uh, angry. He, he also would say things that were quite challenging. Uh, for example, when he turns to the apostles and says, and this is, this is at the Last Supper, mind you, the Last Supper, the last night of his earthly ministry with them, you know, before his death anyway. And he says, are you still so dull? Well, <laughs> how are you going to handle that challenge if God says that to you? Like, a lot of people today would be incensed by that. They would be insulted. They would be outraged. I can't believe he called me dull. Well, what if you are dull? And the master of the universe recognizes that fact and points it out. Doesn't he have that right? Well, yeah. Okay, so what's the praus, praotes person going to do when God or Jesus or the Bible points out something wrong about them? Well, they're going to learn from it and start doing the right thing and not turn to the left or the right and not uh, shrink back and not falter because that's what kind of person they are or that's what kind of person they insist on becoming 
and they learn how through uh, lots of trial and error how to do that and how to continually decouple from the natural desires and temptations and uh, go on and be like God who is superior to the average human, uh, to all humans for the record, but certainly to the average one of us. And so this is our challenge. We're put in a world where we are not by nature perfect. And I don't want to get into the big can of worms about are we by nature corrupt, but humans certainly are not able to be perfect in anything without trying really hard. And then uh, what about being perfect in everything? Because you can certainly do some things well. And let me remind you, on that point, the day that Jesus was uh, calling his apostles, and I'm not sure this was only just one day, but when he was in that time, and then here comes Nathaniel, and he says, Behold, a true Jew in whom there is nothing false. Was Nathaniel prouse? If uh, Jesus' words are true, and boy, I sure hope they were, because he's Jesus, right? And if he's saying untrue things, boy, that sure wrecks the whole idea of him being who I think he is. If Jesus' words are true, and Nathaniel was indeed a person in whom there was nothing false, then this is a guy who knows how to decouple from all the temptations to believe the thing that's wrong, to believe the thing that you know or should know isn't true, to believe the thing that's popular, or to not believe the thing that you know is going to get you in trouble with others. And yet there was nothing false in this man, says Jesus. And of course, we don't know exactly how Jesus would have meant that had we been able to ask him 20 questions about it afterwards. Do you mean that Nathaniel has never told a lie? Well, I don't know how he would answer that. Or do you mean that Nathaniel has never gotten anything wrong, even in math class? Well, I sort of doubt Jesus meant that with it. But until we could question him about it, we don't know for sure. But in Jesus' way of looking at the man, he saw this as a guy who had it on straight and did not have false things in his, uh, at least the most fundamental of his beliefs and, and practices. And so this all sort of, in my mind, this comes together as part of this image of God that we were supposed to do that. You get the Adam and Eve story. They did not do that. They did not obey as they had been commanded. And we'll look at that sometime soon. I want to get back to the beginning again shortly and take a good look at that. But something went wrong there, and they didn't do it. And God says, okay, you can't be in this situation in this garden. You're unqualified. And here's a point I want to make, too, just uh, as a bonus, something to think about. Adam, of course, was created in the image and likeness of God. So was Eve. A male and female, he created them, it says in Genesis 1. So all of mankind, is that talking about Adam and Eve, or is that talking about the whole race at once? Well, that's a great discussion to have. But he created them in this image. And then things didn't go so well. And uh, along the way, there's a few bright spots. Moses was the best of the best. It says, as of that time, and yet Moses, we see, was not perfect himself. Okay, so here's this long line of struggling. And then we get to Jesus, and we are uh, told uh, all throughout the New Testament about uh, how they were called also to live in that image. 
All right. Well, let me point this out to you. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. How many images were there? How many images were there to which man was, uh, into which man was created and to which man was uh, called to follow, to live in? Were there two? Well, there was the old image, you see, Jack, but uh, now there's the new image, and it's Jesus. Well, no, there was only one. Adam and Eve were created in the garden to that one image. Jesus comes later, calling people to that same image, and he himself lived it out perfectly. This is why I believe he is referred to as the second Adam, uh, in contrast to the first Adam, who... Uh, although there were lots of good qualities about him, I believe he did not do it all right, and especially in this particular case of having this special role in that special garden, which is something not conveniently understood what was going on there. And we'll take a look at that. But the first Adam blew it. The second Adam was the perfect representation of God. And yet, how many images were there? The Old Testament folks... The Old Covenant folks, they were called to the image of God. And the New Testament folks were called to the image of God. Same thing. I think a lot of Christians need to think on that one because we get this idea, oh, no, in the Old Testament, it was all about, uh, you know, strict obedience to the law. It's all legalistic and it wasn't really spiritual. And it was just part about uh, being part of a nation, but not really, you know, like having the spirit and being like Jesus and all this, and that came with love and grace and all this in the New Testament. Um, okay, well, some of our views get a little bit off, and you might think that the Old Testament people were called to some lesser image than the New Testament people were. But they weren't. It was the same image. And that image included praus, praotes, this inner strength, uh, as some describe it, it is uh, strength under control. And that is not a weak person. That's not a person who will refuse to call and order pizza because they hate talking on the phone to strangers. That's not a person who will refuse to uh, speak up when the group's getting something wrong because they hate to take issue with people or to have a confrontation or because they're afraid of being thought poorly of. Well, if you're afraid of other people thinking poorly of you, what about if God thinks poorly of you? What if God says, why didn't you stand up? Why didn't you say something? Why didn't you put in a word for God and the Bible and righteousness and truth and justice and all these good things? Why didn't you help your friends keep them from making a moral error? or a math error, or a shopping error, or a, a, a wrong turn error. Why didn't you speak up, right? What if God wants us to be like that and we don't? Well, then we have a reality problem, don't we? And so I think this is something we really need to take a good look at because the average bear out there in Christianity may have different ideas about what it means to be godly in this respect. And uh, Jesus, who, of course, called himself by this word prouse, well, he was not like we tend to be.
and he was not like uh, he is reported as being in so many pulpits on so many Sundays. So uh, this is a good luck for us. I think I'm going to cut it off here uh, because I can't think of anything further to say, which means, of course, that I will think of it after I end this episode. But I doubt very much there will be a part B on this one. So I've enjoyed uh, going through this. I hope you've enjoyed it too. And again, I don't uh, think I have everything on straight. I figured out in 2012, after studying uh, cognitive errors that people make, I figured out, uh uh-oh, I am most likely wrong about many things. And uh, since then, I have learned to spot those things better and better, uh, although I'm sure I haven't spotted all of it. But why I don't hesitate to do a podcast like this is it's just very good practice for us to be thinking through things. So even if you think I've got something wrong, well, I'd sure love to hear that. And so I can take a closer look at it. Um, But I hope that you don't mind the adventure of thinking through and uh, giving these scriptures a really good uh, deep look and lots of consideration. Of course, I think people may get discouraged that, well, I can't... uh, do all of this this week. I'm just new at this. I'm a novice. Well, I'm 55, and I know way more than I did 10 years ago, and way more then than 10 years before that. And so it's just a cumulative thing, but I think the real goal here is to get on the road, be heading that direction, and learn what we can learn, retain what we can retain, and uh, keep testing our ideas as we go to be sure uh, best we can that we've got them right. So thanks so much uh, for listening. I do want to mention here at the end, we have just set up a Patreon account. This podcast takes about $750 a year to sponsor the web hosting for the website and also the audio files that you hear when you listen to the uh, podcast. They are served up by a different company that has has audio servers, uh, sort of like YouTube has uh, video servers. Well, this is one just for podcasts. And So we're paying about $150 a year for the web hosting. We're paying uh, around $50 a month for the audio hosting. And then that doesn't include the equipment uh, that we use and the Bible software that I have, which is uh, very, very expensive. And it's about $100 a month for that after paying the huge uh, down payment, which actually was donated to me by a dear friend for whom I'm very thankful. Uh, however, the, uh, the ongoing monthly, uh, still happens. And so, um, it is very costly. Of course, my time for this, I volunteer and I am so not expecting to get rich from this. Uh, but I would like some help in covering the uh, expenses, especially, uh, I've missed about six weeks of work lately on a medical leave with a, a torn tendon in my left arm. And so just about to get back to work and try to catch up. So I do have a Patreon account. You can go over and support us monthly if you're inclined to do that. And for as little as $3 a month, we've got set up over there. You can make regular recurring payments. Or if you wanted to make just a one-time donation, just a few dollars or a bajillion dollars, whatever you'd like to do to help, uh, we also have a PayPal link. I'll put them both in the show notes for today right up top so you can find them conveniently. And they're also on the front page of the uh, RethinkingTheBible.com website. If you're looking at a computer screen, you'll see them on the right-hand sidebar. And if you're on a phone, you'll see them down at the bottom of the first page. And so 
uh, either through Patreon or the others, a PayPal link, which you can contribute there with either uh, just a debit card, or if you have a PayPal account, you can do that too. Either one is very easy to do. And so I sure would appreciate that if you can help out. And uh, if people can share in the cost and cover all this, then it leaves me free to do other things and to um, not have to work quite so hard to support this uh, this effort here. So again, I would like to get into weekly podcasting. And uh, that's difficult having to work for a living. Well, that's going to stay that way probably for quite some time. But if you could at least help me cover the cost of this, it's it's over a thousand a year that it costs to keep doing this. So I think it's totally worth it. I'm going to keep at it whether I get any help or not, but uh, I know some can help. So I really would appreciate that if you would, and hopefully you think it's worth it. Uh, help helping the um, helping Christians to think through better uh, as we rethink the Bible with reality-based thinking in mind. And that again is honesty, rationality, and responsibility. So there's my pitch. Uh, Send lots and lots of money, and uh, I sure would appreciate that. But most of all, I appreciate you listening, and I appreciate that you uh, care about these things, and I hope that you will think about how you can also help others to care more and more about these things. And that's it for today. Thanks for joining in.